The following is a presentation of the Open Door Bible Baptist Church and Pastor Chris Tice. For more audio and video content, please check us out on the web at www.opendoornj.org. As we study different people uh, in the Bible, uh, we can see that God has people in all places. If you study people like Joseph, and you study people like Daniel, and you study people like Esther, we learn that God is not just working through uh, those in full-time Christian service. That God is working in every place, in all places He has His people. But Esther's very different from Daniel. She doesn't let people know she's Jewish. Uh, She breaks the Mosaic laws. And uh, through compromise, she achieves a great status in the kingdom of Persia. I mean, I don't know about you, but the Esther we see by the end of chapter 4 is not the same Esther. She's changed. There's something different about her. She's responding to uh, what God is doing in her life and maybe for the first time seeing God's providence uh, through it all. I don't know. I don't know her heart or her mind, but I see a different Esther, an Esther unwilling Uh, to kind of compromise her own morality to get a place of elevation, to get herself in a place of position. I mean, think about who she married. I mean, we we look at Xerxes, he's a drunk, he's feasting for many, many days, all the things that are going on uh, around her, and she could not be in that situation without being somehow compromised. And I believe that the question for us as we look at Uh, this hidden providence, providence. and the question right from the bat bat is, in in such morally, culturally, and spiritually ambiguous situations, does God and will God work with us? And I believe that the answer uh, from the book of Esther is yes. He will. He will work because God continues to work no matter how bad man is. Uh, God continues to work no matter how much man has failed. Uh, How many, when you look at uh, some of these characters in the Bible, you scratch your head and say, how did God use him? How did God use them in those situations? I mean, the father of uh, the Israelites, Abraham, look at some of the decisions that he made. And he was a liar, he was a deceiver, I mean, he, 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 he morally compromised himself in several different places and did things that we know were wrong, but yet God used him. Uh, because God's work is not contingent upon my perfection. How many are glad for that today? God's work is not based on my performance. That is the gospel, isn't it? The gospel says that my performance is bad, and even if I try to act better, I still fall short of the glory of God. That I cannot earn uh, grace. Grace is unmerited favor. God's what God has given to us freely. On the flip side of it, as a Christian, I don't want to abuse grace. In other words, I don't want to turn the grace of God into a license to live how I want. I was doing that before I found the Lord. Now that I've been changed by the Lord, I want to respond in the way that brings Him glory. And so we understand that God's grace transforms us who could not transform ourselves uh, through our works and through the things that we do. And so in such morally, culturally, and spiritually ambiguous situations, does God and will God work with us? Does anybody see in our culture today any morally, culturally, or spiritually ambiguous situations? I mean, is this relevant to today? Absolutely. We are dealing with morally ambiguous, culturally ambiguous, spiritually ambiguous situations that are all around us And how many are scratching your head and saying, how is God working here? Where is God working there? Has God, I mean, because if not, you're going to start to be one of those doomsday preachers that says we've got to kind of hunker down in our bomb shelters until the Lord returns. We've got to curse the darkness and we've got to hide inside the subculture that we create for ourselves. But rather, what is the grace of God that brings salvation teaches us? It teaches us that we can deny ungodliness and worldly lusts and we can live godly and soberly and righteously in this present world. And so God has placed us in this present world, much as he has placed Mordecai and Esther in their present world. And God is teaching them by his grace to live godly in that world, to live soberly in a world that's drunken, to live uh, in a way that brings honor and glory to God in those situations, especially where God is not mentioned and God is not praised. I mean, in our culture, is Sunday for God? No, maybe it used to be, but it's not anymore. How many have realized that? In our culture, Sunday is not for God. But in our lives as believers, we make Sunday about God. Why? Because Sunday is supposed to be about God. This is a day we gather as a church to worship. 
We are following the pattern of the early church and recognizing the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who on the third day rose again from the grave in victory and sealing our salvation and giving us and making us by His Spirit the church. He's called us out of darkness into light. And how much uh, we gather is so important, right? So much the more as we see the day approaching. And so while the culture around us may not be making Sunday about God, I don't need the culture to tell me to do what's right. I understand the Bible tells me uh, how I'm to live and, and, and the Spirit of God within me. And as we look at some points today, I want to give you three things. And if you're following along in your worship guide, that's fine. The first thing we're going to look at is that God wants us to understand the importance of where we are. Number two, that God warns us about misplaced identity. And number three, that God's will is that we would live wherever we are to His glory. And those are the three things that we're going to look at today. And the first one, again, is that God wants us to understand the importance of where we are. Do you understand how important it is that you are where you are right now? Not just here in this building, in this room, but where you are in life right now. How many understand that the place you are in life may not be the place you have chosen for yourself, but it is the place where God has brought you, where God has led you? How many, like me, would say, if it was up to me, I wouldn't choose this for me? How many with me? How many can say amen today? Some of you, maybe there's some people around you, you can, everybody you can look enviously at the people that are happy about their situation today. You say, well, I'm, I've learned in whatever state I am there with to be content. Thank you, brother, for being spiritual. I'm having a hard time. Are you with me? How many are learning? Some of us are learning that in the state where we're being content. But how many know there's a period of adjustment to learning? Paul learned to be content, but I don't think that Paul was always content because Paul was imperfect. He was a man. So like Paul, I struggle with contentment, finding my current situation where it is. Some of you, I'm not trying to get pity from you today. I'm trying to just identify with you as a human being and just say all of us have situations that we are learning to be content in. And it could be the time of life that you are in. It could be the transition of life. It could be family. You could have young, younger children, tr- children transitioning, children moved on. Uh, some of you have lost children. Some of you have lost loved ones. You're learning transition right now. This is a difficult time. But how many know that transitions are necessary for growth? But this is what I want us to recognize from this chapter today, is that God wants us to understand the importance of, of where we are. How many know that in our culture and society, what we're being taught and what young people especially, how many have ever gone out and you see people and where they are, they're not paying attention to because they're paying attention to a device that's taking them somewhere else? How many that's a little disturbing that there's that much control or that much discontentment with who we're with all the time that we cannot pay attention to who we're with and where we are Even sometimes people, they can't even put their phone away in church because they can't be where they are. They've got to be with, they've got to be accessible by. What did we do before we had them? I mean, the life life went on. The world went round and round. Maybe we didn't have time. I'm not preaching against them today. I use them. Uh, But what what I'm saying is we have a problem, and the problem is not the device. The problem is the heart of man. And that is that we don't understand how important it is that where we are, I, I don't want to, as a father, look back on the time I have with my kids and wish I would have been more aware of or cognizant of or paid attention to when I was there with them in those moments. That, By the way, we can never get back, right? That, those moments with your spouse that you can never get back. Those, those times with your church family where God wanted to work in your heart, but you can never get that moment back. And a lot of times we're just wasting time, aren't we? And in our minds, we're trying to be somewhere where we're not because we don't understand the importance of being where we are. It's important that you are here today. Do you believe that you are here by accident? Do you believe that this is just coincidence? Or do you believe in the providence of God? Do you believe that God places you where you are for specific purposes and specific times because He has something to say to you and He wants to speak to you? But how many know that through so many times we've got our fingers in our ears? And we don't understand how important it is. How many, 
in life have realized how important it was that you were where you were at a certain time. And through that being in that place, you, God providentially protected you. Because you were in a certain place at a certain time. It was no coincidence that you left your keys and you had to go back in and it took a few more minutes and because of that you missed an accident. It was no coincidence that had this happened or had that happened, you'd be in a different place today. It's no coincidence. Listen, none of us are guaranteed health. How many of us have gone through some health things and because of those health problems, we could say, I, I, I don't even know how I'm here except for the providence of God. And can I say this? That's not a mistake, and that's not a coincidence, and that's not luck. You're here because it's important that you be here. Because God wants you to be here. And God wants you to understand that you're here for a purpose and for a reason. And so God wants us to understand the importance of where we are. Mordecai is in the gate of the palace. He's not in the gate of the city. He's in the gate of the palace. How many understand that's an important place? Where he is in Susa on a hill, 120 feet above everything, was the palace and the palace complex. It was kind of a city unto itself. To be there was the pinnacle of culture. And that's where Mordecai found himself. It wasn't an accident that Mordecai was there. Mordecai is a religious minority, a racial minority. He's, he, he's brought out of captivity into a land. He, he's a captive in that land, but God has placed him in a prominent position, an important place. And maybe some of us, if we're in that place, say, well, yeah, I'm not in the palace, I'm at the gate. But God puts you where you are for a reason. He has a reason for you being where you are. And what he says to Esther, because Esther doesn't understand this, and from where they are, the laws, the ideas that shaped all of life are coming from. And Mordecai is saying to Esther, you're there, Esther. You're in the palace. You've got to use what you've got. And I think the first thing we learn, not just from Esther, but from Daniel and Joseph as well, is that God uses for his work in the world, not just missionaries and ministers, but people out in secular space. He uses for his work both lay and clergy. He uses them all. And I'm saying that because I think sometimes we think that our role is to let the pastors, the ministers, do the spiritual work, and we're just here to give and support and show up and be part of the audience. But that's not the case at all, is it? God has placed all of us in His timing, in His providence, where we are, in our career, in our family, in our relationships, in our geography. Don't think, oh, I'm, I'm just living in this area and that's just an accident. That's not an accident. I believe that God has, through His providence, placed this church here for His providence, for this area, for people to be able to hear the Word of God. Why? Because He loves people. He wants people to hear the Gospel. God has placed our family. He's placed me here. Even sometimes, listen, how many are like me? You Sometimes you're a runner. You want to run away? You want to get away? You want to go away? You want to hide? You don't want anybody to find you? That's me. Sometimes I don't want to be. Sometimes I'm Gideon behind the threshing floor hiding. I'm not a courageous person. I'm, I'm, I'm not so sure how this is going to turn out. How many like me sometimes you do things to protect your own hide because you're afraid of how things are going to turn out and you're afraid to courageously step forward in the position that God's placed you in and do what God has placed you there to do. And sometimes it's a hard thing and sometimes it's a dangerous thing. But God uses for His work in the world, not just missionaries and ministers, but people out in the secular space. He uses for His work both lay and clergy. He uses them all. Don't you think for a second, listen, uh, for a long time religion has put this great difference between clergy and the lay people. And I almost don't even like, the, the, the other than the fact that I'm up here with the Word of God, the elevated position today is for the Word of God, not for me. And because I'm short. Are you with me? So you couldn't see me if I was on the floor. So there's a practical reason to it too. I don't know that I need to be this high. But I don't necessarily like the separation. Are you with me? Because I'm not better than you. I'm not better than you. God just placed me in the position to pastor this church. I, I have a lot of respect for the office. I, I understand that this is a, a, an important space, an important position. I know that God has equipped me and called me, but I, I don't feel qualified sometimes. I don't feel like I should be in this place a lot of times, and I wonder sometimes and scratch my head just probably like you do and say, how in the world is this guy pastoring this church? Surely there must be someone better. And listen, that's, th- those are the things that go through my mind just like you do because I know sometimes as a father you say, they could have had a better dad. They could have had a better mom. They could, uh, sometimes uh, you look at your spouse. They, I could have uh, had a better spouse. No, I'm just kidding. I could be a better spouse, right? Some of you caught that. 
Freudian slips today. And sometimes we're in those positions where we, we feel compromised and we don't understand how important it is that where we, where we are. And at the end of the book of Revelation, I think we understand something. You don't see people leaving earth and going to heaven at the end of the book of Revelation. Isn't that interesting? Because the goal of God is that his life comes into this world and cleanses and perfects and transforms and makes the world new. So that all of what is wrong with this world is healed. And how many believe that one day everything that's wrong with this world is going to be made right? Isn't it interesting that at the end of the book, you don't see people ascending. You see them coming back to this new, new earth, this new place to dwell. Why? Because the things that are broken, I believe, in the world could be summed up this way. Our relationship with him is broken. Our relationship with each other is broken. And our relationship with creation in the world and the earth is broken. And by the end of the book, how many see all three of those things are healed? And God makes everything right. Can I tell you, that's coming. Jesus is going to make everything right. I like what a pastor from England said about Joseph. He said this, if I went to a book table and saw the title, The Man God Uses, you'd think of a missionary or a pastor. But Joseph was neither. God greatly uses people in law. He greatly uses people in medicine. He greatly uses people in the arts. And at this spot in the Bible, we have a perfect example of that. Jews in exile, but at this point on their way back, they're trying to rebuild their lives. They're trying to rebuild a nation. They're trying to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. And I love how God in his word shows the diversity of people that he uses by giving us not one person, but three books on how he's going to do that. Ezra, these are all happening at the same time. Ezra is about a minister, a teacher of the word. Nehemiah is a layman, an urban planner and developer. He used management skills to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem so economic life and civic life could flourish. And then Esther, up in the royal court working for justice, notice this, male and female, clergy and lay, everybody, God is using them all. And so all of us can come away and say today, no matter what field I am, what career I am, what place I am, God wants to use me. He wants to use me to bring about His will. The second thing I want to uh, mention today is when we think about our positions, we're not supposed to be using our positions for ourselves, but instead, we're to use our connections to serve God. How many know that we could be very short-sighted? Again, believing that specially called ministers do His work, and our work is to participate, to spectate, to support alone. We're not supposed to use our positions for ourselves, but instead we're to use our connections to serve God. Don't use your opportunities to serve yourself. Serve God through every opportunity and connection that He gives you. If God is giving you an opportunity in your job or in your family, then use that connection, use that opportunity to serve the Lord. Say, how in the world does God want me to serve in a secular field, in a secular way? Does God want to draw the lost to Himself? Does he want us to go into the world and preach the gospel? Sometimes I feel like we send the wrong message to our young people, that every young person that comes, uh, goes through our, 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 our church needs to go to the foreign field as a missionary or become a pastor or a Christian school teacher or whatever. Whatever they do, we want them to serve God and to love God. And we don't want to call people that God hasn't called into full-time Christian service. Because I'm, I'm going to tell you this morning, the worst thing that you could do is go into full-time Christian service and not be called. It's the worst thing that you can do. But what I could tell you today is all of us are called to wherever we are to bring glory to God, to see the importance of where we are. You are an important place. You're an important people. You live during an important time. How many know that we are making history? We are making history for, our, for the next generation, the generation that will follow How many have seen too many quiet years in history where nothing has been done, nothing has been changed? Uh, One of the the things that, uh, you know, sometimes I've heard, even in our own church, is, Pastor, it's been years since we've done anything, made a decision. I I remember hearing that from people here. We, We haven't done anything. We haven't made a step. We haven't taken a ball. Listen, how many know that sometimes we move from risk taking to caretaking? We stop taking risks. And we just become keepers of the aquarium instead of fishers of men. 
You know, a church that turns internally and just starts keeping the aquarium instead of going out and what God's called us to be fishers of men, it, it, it's a risk for us to go outside of the aquarium. Are you with me? But that's what God has called us. He's called us to launch out. He's called us to go out deeper, further. Why? Because He's with us. We don't have to be afraid. God has a mighty plan for us. And if God has put some dream, some, some thought in your heart, and He wants you to do something, let me, let me tell you this, today, you better follow Him. You better obey Him. Do we need more missionaries and ministers? Yes, we do. I'm praying that God raises up another pastor in this church or God raises us some missionaries that we can send to foreign fields. But I'm praying that God raises up the people of God here to go wherever He sends them, wherever He's placed them, to His glory. The second thing is that God warns us about misplaced identity, I believe, here in this text. How many see Esther not even revealing who she is? Well, Mordecai told her not to. She's not revealed who she is as a person. She's not living. Do you see her living who she is? She's not living her own identity. She's living an identity that's been created for her. She's living the identity that the culture's imposed on her. I mean, she went through all the beautification treatments. She went through all the process of, the purification of. She's postured herself in such a way. I mean, think about I'm not going to get into the details of it, but it's like one night with a king, and whoever pleased the king the most became the queen. Are you with me? That's not a contest that you can keep your morality in being part of, but it is the contest that she was a part of. She was thrust into this. Whether by choice or whether she was thrust into it, she's a part of it. She's a part of what's going on around her. Because of that, she has the danger of losing her identity. How many know sometimes in our culture we have the danger of losing our identity as Christians? Because we begin to identify more with the culture that we live in than we do with the Christ that has changed us and transformed us and give us a new identity. There's a high danger of being in the palace, isn't there? Sometimes we think of the palace as being the place of most safety. But how many know that the Bible says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers? What he says against spiritual wickedness in high places. You know, the place where everybody wants to be is the high place. But how many know that sometimes the high place is the place where the most wickedness is? You want to find the devil? Go to the high places of our world. You'll find him. He's there. And by the way, you won't have to look very hard. Most of us think it's in the dark alleys and the red light districts that we see Satan at work. But Satan's a deceiver. He disguises himself as an angel of light and as a minister. And by the way, if you want to know, the powerful places is the places we find our enemy. And there's a danger of living in the high place. And Esther had a dangerous life, didn't she? Because she was living this dichotomy life. She was living this, this double minded life. She's here in the palace. She knows she has a responsibility now with what she, who she is to leverage that. She's finding that out. God is revealing that to her. He's speaking into her through Mordecai. And she's finding out what her purpose is. Now all of a sudden the light's turning on. I know why I'm here now. But she didn't know that when it was, was going on. She didn't understand that. Are you with me? Let's live through the reality of it rather than sometimes We've, we've sterilized the book of Esther, and we've heard enough preach, be like Esther, be like Esther, be like Esther. But how many, when you read the book of Esther, say, I don't want to be like Esther at all? Because the message of the Bible is not be like Esther. And this is what we're looking at as we look through. God warns us here about misplaced identity. Esther says 30 days have passed. Capital punishable, punishable offenses go to the king uh, for going to the king unbidden. Esther might have also thought, I got here because the last queen was too bold. Remember her? That's how the last queen got axed. And now she's in a position where she's going to have to be bold. How about this? She might have thought, I've fallen out of the favor. The king hasn't been with me in 30 days. That didn't bode well for her. She hasn't seen the king, been called to the king, been around the king in 30 days. That, that, that doesn't say I'm your favorite, does it? I mean, so here she is in this position where she doesn't feel that she has the influence, and he says this to her. He says, I know what I'm asking of you. But his response is a little brutal, isn't it? He says, you'll lose either way. 
you're going to get snuffed out either way. But he gets more compassionate when he gets down to the last part, and he says, for such a time as this. He says, who knows if you've come into the kingdom for such a time as this. He reminds her of something. He says this, God's will is going to be done with you or without you. But it can be done with you. If you won't do it, it'll happen. And you'll be part of those that get snuffed out. But God's going to keep his promise. With you or without you. How many know that's what's set before us today? We put too much of the will of God on ourselves, thinking that if, I've heard it preached almost this way, if I don't do the will of God, then the will of God doesn't get done. How many know it's, it's quite the opposite? If I don't do the will of God as your pastor, the will of God is going to get done. It'll just get done through another person, and I'll miss the blessing of being used of God. If you don't do the will of God, listen, if you don't participate, if you don't do your part, if you don't, listen, it's going to get done. How many know the gates of hell are not going to prevail against the church? My confidence is not, listen, I understand sometimes, well, we, did, we didn't have that much of our, listen, God is going to take care of us. You have the opportunity to have a part of that. You have the opportunity to get the blessing from being a part of it. But with or without you, it gets done. Are you with me? Sometimes we think it doesn't get done. No, it gets done. God does things in marvelous, miraculous ways. And you know one of the greatest miracles is that he wants to use me. And he wants to use you. How many of you were God would not use you? But God looks at us and he says, I want to use you. I know you've made mistakes. I know you've been morally compromised. I know that you're not proud of your past. I understand that you're guilty of things. But I want to use you to bring myself glory. And if you'll just let yourself be used, I can use you. God is such a big God that he can use us who are so little and so flawed. He can use us and bring glory from us. If God can get the glory from the mouth of a donkey... If God can get the glory from rocks, if God can get the glory from trees, if God can get the glory from stars, may He get the glory from us. His greatest creation. The one that He gave Himself for. The one that He loves. But how many know if you don't speak, the rocks will cry out. If you don't say, the heavens will declare. Someone else will come. But may we in our generation say, God... I'll find my identity in you. And I understand you want to use me no matter what it will cost me. Unless you use the clout, the credentials, the connections you've got, instead of seeing it as a way of furthering your own career, feathering your own nest, healing the world, then you're dead already. It's already devoured you. That's what Mordecai says to you. If you don't use your clout, if you don't use your position... If you don't use your career, hey, Esther, if you're just trying to feather your own nest, if you're just trying to protect yourself and you're trying to protect your own hide, get this, you can't hide from it because destruction is going to come and you're going to go with it. But if you place yourself in God's hands, nothing can pluck you out of it. If you put yourself in a position where God has to protect you, He will protect you. How many know sometimes that's the danger in our lack of faith is we are unwilling to put ourselves in positions where God has to protect us, where God has to empower us. We love to be in positions that we're in control of, but we hate to be in positions where we're not. That's seen in our giving. That's seen in our serving. That's that's seen in everything, isn't it? Faith. Without faith, it's what? Impossible to please God. God warns us about misplaced identity. In other words, this. Don't live for the palace. Use your place in the palace to live for the Lord who puts you there. How many have ever found yourself living for the palace when you should have been living for Jesus? We find ourselves living for the palace, living for our career, living for our position, living for what helps us get further in this culture, which, by the way, is all going to burn. Are you with me? It's all going to burn. You're not going to take any of it with you. And you'll be part of the destruction. Or you can be part of God's providence. 
You look at the history of our nation. Do you see God's providence like I do? God's providence? God's choosing to bless a people who what? Put themselves in harm's way for what? For the Bible, for the gospel, for worshiping God. Who put themselves in a position who hazard their what? Their lives and their honor and their fortune for what? For freedom. Listen, I'm, I'm, I'm okay with identifying. I'm, I'm thankful to identify this morning as an American. But not the expense of identifying as a Christian. The church has allowed itself to be politically defined for too long. How many see corruption in politics, no matter which side you look at? I don't know about you, but I'm not looking at either side of the aisle and saying, there's our Savior. And I'm not looking at either side and saying, there's my identity. Anybody want to find your identity in a political party today? That's not my identity. Is it yours? It's not my identity. It's not how I want to be identified. But I want to be identified as a child of God, a Christian, a follower of Jesus, Hey, listen, how many see through the history of the church those that identify with Christ when it cost them and what that brought to the church? The strongest church has always been the persecuted church. The church that has seen the greatest miracles, the church that has seen so many people, thousands of people come to know the Lord Jesus Christ has been the church that is willing to hazard their lives and their comfort and their fortunes to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't live for the palace. The palace is going. Use your place in the palace to live for the Lord who put you there. There's a danger when we're living for our place instead of using our place to live for God. So, is it possible to root your identity in your position in the palace? Yeah. To root your identity in money. To root your identity in culture. You see that happening? It's possible. And by the way, culture comes on strong, doesn't it? It wants to identify us. It wants to divide us. It wants to put us in a category. How many see that in the culture? Culture's okay as long as we can be placed in a category. And then be defined completely by that category. But Christians have never been able to be thrust into culture's categories. They've always rose above them. They've always not been defined by them. They've always stood out from them. Oh, they might have been branded rebels. They might have been branded patriots. They they might have been branded people who wouldn't go with the flow. But I tell you today, Christians, our calling is not to go with the flow. It's to go with God. It's to follow God. Your net worth is not your self-worth. Your net worth is not your self-worth. Some of you, you're down in the dumps because you've allowed your net worth to be your self-worth, but you're not identified by your social status or your racial status or your however you're categorized political status. You're identified by who you are in Jesus today. That's our identity. When we're identified by our net worth or Our culture, it's eaten us. There's no you left. To live for the palace is to get identity from performance. If you're willing to risk your place in the palace, if you're unwilling, rather, to risk your place in the palace, it's eaten you. You're the tail and it's the dog. You've lost. And Mordecai is saying this, if you can't risk throwing away the palace for others, your people, then it's devoured you and you're destroyed already. The culture around you, Esther, has destroyed you if you will not lay down your life for this cause, for this time. Even here, the word grace is hinted at, isn't it? The word come in Hebrew is passive. He says, who knows if you're not brought to this royal position, if you've not been brought in, not by your own doing. That's that's what he's implying here. You've not been brought here through your own making, through your own devices, 
through your own doing. Grace is implied. You are where you don't deserve to be. You should have no power. You should have no position. But you have power and you have position and it's God's grace. Here's the danger. Some of you might try to do what Esther did. When we find our identity in our own performance instead of the person of Jesus Christ, we make the same mistake. Some of you may do, come away from this and say, I'm going to be like Esther. I'm not going to look at my position the same way. I'll see it as a way of serving others. I'm going to get more involved. I'm going to take risks. I've been too quiet about my beliefs, so I'm going to start speaking up. Unfortunately, that's sometimes what comes through in the message, but that is not the message. Some of us who say, I don't want to be like Esther. I want to make sure that I I do more. I do more. I speak out more. I'm involved more. And here's the danger in that. First, it's not going to last. How many know that? You'll go out, you'll be charged up, you'll do a couple things maybe for a few days, but then it's going gonna, it's gonna to tail off. And you're going to fail again. And you're not going to speak up like you should. And so, that, that's a failure. And then if you get inspired by an example like Esther, or hear a sermon, be like Esther, but the basic motivation is guilt, it'll wear off, or here's the other side of the coin, you'll get inspired and then you'll overreact. People are secretive about their faith and then they realize they need to be more overt and then they get obnoxious about their faith. How many know there's a ditch on both sides of those roads? In other words, they go out and say, I'm going to identify with Jesus and I'm going to curse the darkness while I'm I'm going to stand up and I'm going to, you know, I'm really going to let everybody have it. I'm going to tell them where they're going. I'm going to just give it to them. That's an obnoxious overreaction because it's a fleshly move, isn't it? You're trying to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, and so you're going to overcompensate by reacting in the flesh. Do you know what that is? That's just not leaving the palace. You're still rooted in your performance, just like a Pharisee. And this feeling is either going to wear off or you become Pharisaical if we only look at Esther as an example. Because identity found in an example, even a great example, can only crush you. Identity found in an example, even a great example, can only crush you. Listen, I understand that I'm supposed to be an example, but I also understand I'm not supposed to be your identity. Are you with me? There's a difference when we find our identity in a great example because we say this, we'll come away with this. I need to be more like so-and-so. No, you don't. Whoever you're trying to be more like that's not like Jesus, stop it. Whoever you're trying to be more like that's not Jesus, stop it. Jesus is our only example. You say, well, well, there's other people. There's other examples. Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. I'm with you on that. God puts people in our lives as part of his plan. I, I understand that. Thank God for good examples. But how many see the problem in trying to be someone else? I'm never going to be a preacher who is an example to me. I'm never going to be that person. I will fail trying to be them. Where is my success? Following Jesus, letting him use who I am. How many have ever tried to be someone else? Did you find happiness in doing that? Tried to do everything the way they did it. Tried to say everything the way they said it. I've seen preachers copy other preachers down to their coughs their pauses, their inflections. What are they trying to do? They're trying to be someone else, thinking if I act like this person, I'll have the results of this person. It's living in the palace, isn't it? It's living by your performances. It's not finding your identity in Jesus. I have to know that living for Jesus is enough. Letting Jesus live through me is enough, even if I'm not like so-and-so or such-and-such. Even if they're trying to press me into their mold. Isn't that... Sometimes what examples do to us, they try to press us into their mold. And how many, like David, can say to Saul, I can't wear your armor, it doesn't fit me. I got to go out to Goliath the way God's prepared me, being the man God's made me for the time he's placed me in, for the point that he's brought me into this position. That's what we all need to do. Are you with me? Because an example that you find your identity in is just going to crush you. And then lastly this morning, 
God's will is that we would live wherever we are to His glory. God's will is that we would live wherever we are to His glory. There's another way. How can you change? Well, it's when we look at the Bible properly and rightly divide. It's when we allow Hebrews to inform the way that we read the Old Testament. How many love Hebrews chapter 11? We call it the Hall of Fame, right? Heroes of the faith. How many, when you get to Hebrews chapter 12, you go, oh, that's not what it is. Oh, I'm not supposed to look to them. I'm supposed to look to who? Jesus. What does God do in chapter 12? They're not heroes. They're signposts. They're points on the path in your race that say, follow Jesus, not us. What does Abraham say? Don't follow me. I messed up. Follow Christ. He esteemed the riches of Christ greater. What does Moses say? Don't follow me. Follow Christ. What did Paul say? Don't follow me. Follow Christ. You can follow me if I'm following Christ, but it's only because I'm following Christ that you can follow me. Because really, I'm just trying to point you to Christ. That's all he was saying. I've heard preachers take that verse and say, oh, you need to follow us, follow us, follow us. I don't need to hear about a bunch of men. I need to hear about my Savior, Jesus, the greatest man who's still alive today. Are you with me? Men have failed. They're dead in the grave. Jesus is alive. He's on the throne. See, these examples will crush us if we try to be them, but they should just help us to see Jesus. They're signposts. All the religions of the world, there's a gap, a chasm between us and God, right? So what do we need? What do the religions of the world tell us we need? Mediation, right? I need something to come between and fix that gap. There's a big gap between me and God, and something has to mediate that gap. I need mediation for this relationship. I need transformation of conscience. And here's what the Bible tells us here. Esther saved her people by identification and mediation. She identified with her people. She didn't take the safe way. She risked coming under condemnation of her people. But because she identified with her people, she could mediate for her people. And she received favor. And that favor was imputed to her people. Does that remind you of anyone? Who is willing to identify with us in humanity so that he could mediate for us? Whose position and favor became our position and favor? It's Jesus. It's hidden, but it's there, isn't it? That's what we need to see. That's what the book's pointing to. Don't be like Esther. Look for Jesus. That's what the Jews need, isn't it? Don't be like Esther. Look for Jesus. Look for the Messiah. What was God saying through the Old Testament? Messiah is coming. The Messiah is coming. The Messiah is coming. What do the Pharisees end up doing? Say, oh, we're going to be great men. We're going to be great men and people are going to look for us. They're going to look at us. They're going to follow us. It's about us. Boy, and that's what religion does, doesn't it? Look at us. What does God say when Jesus shows up? Look at him. Hear him. That's the only thing Mary said. Whatever he says, do it. Listen to him. This is my beloved son. Hear ye him. His favor. He was well favored. He, in, in Christ, God said, I'm well pleased with him. You want to know why God's well pleased with you today? It's because of Jesus, not because of your performance. Stop trying to earn God's favor. You've received God's favor by grace. God has given it to you already. He's accepted you. Jesus had no one prompt him or conjole him like Esther needed to be prompted and conjoled. He willingly did it. The Bible says he became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. Esther said, if I perish, I perish. How did she get there? If you just see Esther as an example, it crushes you. But if you see Jesus as your Savior, it changes you. There's your security, by the way. 
There's your real worth. Now you can truly give up on all the stuff around you. And that's where she came to the conclusion, if I perish, I perish. How did she go in one chapter from, but you don't understand what it's going to cost me if I go and what might happen to me and all that process. How did she go from that to if I perish, I perish? God got a hold of her heart. She put faith in God. She said this. All of a sudden, she sounds more like Daniel and Joseph, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. If we perish, we perish. But we're going to glorify God. We're going to do what He wants us to do. No matter what it costs us, we're going to follow Christ. No matter what the culture is saying, no matter what the king is saying, no matter what the odds look like, we are all in for Jesus. And if we perish, we perish. What does that do? Well, it makes us in complete love with Him instead of the world. It brings us to radical generosity. Willing to give everything, including ourselves. Paul said it this way, whether by my life or by my death. How many want to present yourself before the Lord a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, understanding it's just a reasonable response to His great love and compassion that he's had on you by his grace. If I perish, I perish, but I'm going to give it all to Jesus. I'm going to be radically generous. See, Christians who aren't aren't trusting God and trusting the world are stingy. They're counting. Hey, remember the Pharisees? Down to the, the spice. Every tithe of every, just counting, 10% of every, they're counting it all. You know, what, you know what a Christian that understands lordship says? It all belongs to God. It all belongs to him. Whatever he wants, he can have. I'm going to give willingly and cheerfully. I, I don't need to be constrained. I don't need to be cajoled. I don't need to have an emotional, uh, impulsive giving. If I have something and God wants it, he can have it because God can supply all my need according to his riches and glory by Christ. And I'm not trusting in what I have. I'm trusting in Him. Radical generosity. I'm not in love with the things of the world. If you see Jesus as a Savior, then you can have the freedom to say, if I perish, I perish. Because you know if you perish in Christ, you don't perish. We can truly serve the poor of the world. We can truly help those that are in need. If you wish to be like Christ, give much. Give often. Give freely to the poor, to the thankless, to the undeserving. If I perish, I perish is the language of identifying with the poor. Mission mindset. I'm not living according to the world's philosophy. If I perish, I perish is the language of exciting mission. Wherever you are, you're in a position with certain abilities, even the experience of hard times that you and only you can minister in certain situations. How many know this? If you have a mission mindset, you understand there's some people that God has placed in your path that he wants you to help, that I'll never meet and can help, that may never darken the doors of our church building, but may they know the church people because we're out and we're serving and we're helping and we're reaching. This is not my duty. This is where I'm coming to worship. Are you with me? I want to go out and serve the Lord now. How about you? This is not just me serving the Lord. This is the huddle. Now we need to go run the play. We've come together to hear what the play is. God's given us the instruction. Now let's go run the play. Are you with me? Let's do what he's called us to do. Have a mission mindset. And then lastly, it gives us unconditional obedience. I have no other lords but Christ. If I perish, I perish. This is the language of unconditional obedience. Don't just try God out or make him your personal assistance. assistant. Take your hands off your life and put your life in his hands. How many of that's a little scary today? Do you believe you can trust God completely? Fully? With everything? Are you? Say, so, well, I believe it. Belief affects behavior. What you truly believe, you'll act on. If not, it's just knowledge. Knowledge puffs up. 
Knowledge causes me to think more highly of myself than I should. Knowledge makes me think I'm obeying just because I have education. Some people, they do that. They read the Bible, they get a lot of head knowledge about the Bible, and they think they're doing. You're not doing anything until you start living what that Bible is saying. Belief affects behavior. Faith is functional. It moves forward in your life. If I can't let him have lordship over my life without conditions, then I'm living as my own savior. You don't just need Jesus to save you from perishing in hell and to give you a life when yours is over. You need him to empower you to live now. If you're only needing Jesus for an afterlife, it's possible that you don't possess eternal life because you're just not understanding it. If you only need Jesus for an afterlife, isn't that what religion is about? It's what happens after my life. Some people, they're only trusting Jesus for their afterlife because they're uncertain about that, can't do anything about it. So they say, well, I'll trust God for, I want to go to heaven. I want to go to heaven. So I'll trust God to go to heaven. But for now, this is my life. That's not salvation. How many know that? Salvation changes how you live now. It transforms how you think now. It moves on you now because you possess eternal life as a Christian now. Jesus didn't possess eternal life before he died. Or after he died, he possessed it. He always had it. He raised himself up because of it. And that's why we'll be raised up, because we also have it. And the spirit that raised Jesus up from the dead now dwells in you. And that's why we have that power. You only become a person of greatness not by trying to become a person of greatness, but by serving the one who said, Father, your will be done. Jesus said, if you want to be great, be a servant. Be last. Be humble. Follow me. Trust me. I know about you today, but as I live in this world where there's compromise all around, calling me to involve myself in it, I want to know, I want to remember that God wants me to understand the importance of where I am. God warns me about my misplaced identity. And God's will is that I would live wherever I am to his glory. May we see and understand through his word the hidden God, knowing that he's hidden but not hiding. And those that seek him shall find him when they search for him with their whole heart. Here's a question. Are you looking for him? Are you just looking for your promotion? Are you living for the palace? Are you just trying to follow examples, self-helps, positive thinking, the power of it? Are you living in the power of the Holy Spirit, knowing that even through negative, hard, difficult times, His will can be done? If God has used this ministry in any way to be a blessing to you, please take a moment to send us an email to info at opendoornj.org. Also, if you would like to support this ministry financially, you can do so online at opendoornj.org. Thanks for tuning in.